Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Today, it is Wednesday, July 11th of 2012, and our guest is Dr. Mark Lewis, MD. He is the author of Memoirs of an Addicted Brain. He is a neuroscientist and a former drug addict, and it should be very interesting. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to our website to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, uh, Dr. Mark Lewis, is uh, with us right now. We're going to bring him on. Mark, how are you doing today? Hi, Ken. Very well, thanks. I should mention, uh, as a special guest, uh, Mark is visiting us from the Netherlands today. That's why we scheduled the show a little early. Um, so I'm going to jump right in and uh, ask you a little bit. What, what is the? Your book is Memoirs of an Addicted Brain. Tell us a little bit about what it's about. It is about um, my history of drug taking and, and drug abuse and eventual addiction from the age of about uh, 17 to 30. It is a memoir, so it's a it's a real story of of what it was like. But it's interspersed with uh, neuroscience because um, I want to write a book that combines the experience of drugs and addiction with um, some description of what's going on in the brain in the process of taking various drugs and also in the process of addiction, which has its own uh, special brain changes devoted to it. And uh, I wanted to integrate that into one account, and that, that's really that's what's behind the book. How did you become interested in neuroscience? Well, I should mention I'm not an MD; I'm a PhD. And it's um, I went back to grad school when I finally quit drugs at around the age of 32, and um, got into psychology, became a developmental psychologist, got a job as a professor in psychology, and then after about 12 years of that, I switched over to neuroscience because cause I, cause it's really fun. It's, 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 there's a lot of, um, I used to like playing with my mechano set when I was a kid, so I, I like the nuts and bolts stuff, and, and, uh, and I also was very interested in emotion and the development of emotional processes and personality processes, and neuroscience provides a very, very unique and uh, very powerful new lens on some of those processes. Um, well, I'm going to go a little bit into your personal history first, and then we're going to go to some more abstract issues. Um, you started out, well, as everyone starts, uh, with being a recreational drug user and then uh, became addicted. What was the difference? How did uh, you switch from one to the other? This, it's not as much a switch as a gradual transition. I'm mm -hmm. sure you know Um I don't think of it as, as having a hard and fast uh, uh, demarcation, but as as I as I 
began to prefer opiates to other kinds of drugs. I was in Berkeley at the time, and I was taking a lot of psychedelics, LSD, and all the other ones. And uh, that was that was fun and games, but it wasn't it wasn't the kind of thing that uh, well, it's it's not really it's not very easy to become addicted to psychedelics, either physically or uh, or um, uh, psychologically. So, but opiates is another matter, and they felt very um, they very soothing, very peaceful, seemed to deal with a lot of the issues that I had, and uh, I just really liked them. And I also was uh, into being a bit of a bad boy and taking risks and so forth, so I played around, took a lot of chances. And uh, as the, the months and years went by, I realized that I, I was liking them more and more, and I didn't care very much about my overall pattern of drug taking. I just wanted to do it when I wanted to do it, and I guess that was when I, I realized that uh, this, this was now technically an addiction. So were you physically addicted as well as psychologically addicted? In and out. I had times when I went through withdrawal symptoms for a week or two at a time. But I would never keep going continuously for long enough to go through the severe kind of month-long withdrawal that people sometimes talk about. So when I talk about addiction, I'm talking about psychological addiction, uh, which eventually built to an extremely powerful craving for drugs when I didn't have them, and uh, the capacity and willingness to take incredible chances with my, with my health, my life, and, of course, my freedom to, to get drugs when I, when I wanted them, when I felt very needy. And I think those issues of, of craving and um, being unable to muster the uh, self-control and inhibitory control to stop yourself and, and just that kind of headlong rush into into whatever it takes. I'm going to get high tonight. That's that's how I I would characterize the psychological addiction that I that I had. Is addiction a disease? I don't call it that. I've been pretty interested in the disease choice uh, debate, the various definitions, and I've been writing about it on my blog and having a lot of, uh, of uh, dialogue with my readers. Um, I'm aware of the way it works. I'm aware, aware of some of the advantages to users, both in terms of alleviating self-blame and a certain amount of self, self, self-contempt self and so forth, but also uh, in helping to discharge the, the negative, the hostile uh, opinions of others. I have a disease. It's not my fault. But... Understanding what goes on in the brain and understanding that, yes, the brain does change with addiction um, is not – you go past the addiction, the, the disease metaphor, and you start to see addiction as a developmental process. And it's not that dissimilar from other forms of learning, although, of course, there are all kinds of very nasty consequences. But I think it is a kind of learning, uh, very specialized, very self-perpetuating, very – singular, uh, and um, it does indeed wipe out the tendency to choose other forms of reward. And yet, when we fall in love, and there are other kinds of emotional experiences that also take a very singular path and become completely uh, self-perpetuating and and sort of mindless in the the power that they exert. So I, I, I see addiction more as a developmental path. When you talk about learning, are you talking about uh, like a conditioned response, like a Pavlovian approach? Part of it is conditioning. So addicts respond strongly to cues that um, 
are associated with their drug or drink of choice, um, walking by the bar, talking to someone that you've used with, um, even just fragments of memory, imagery, is enough to get uh, neurochemical systems, especially the dopamine system, um, pumping up various areas of the goal, uh, the goal pursuit network. People often talk about dopamine as a pleasure circuit. I think that's, that's old-fashioned. We think of it now not so much as a pleasure circuit, but rather has fueling processes of attraction and goal pursuit. And so that dopamine rush that comes with drug and alcohol-related cues um, is what helps to focus one's attention very strongly on that one particular goal. And then there's a, there's a feedback cycle. You, you can't stop thinking about it. You go and get it. You do it. Then you run out or you wake up the next morning. And for various reasons, you feel terrible again. And so, of course, the, the cues are all that much stronger. And so, again, you pursue it. And as you do this, you continue to build up associations. You continue to devote um, synaptic networks to the value and the meaning of this stuff. And you begin to learn not only a set of associations, but a whole way of thinking about the world, a whole way of... of um, uh, shall we say, organizing or um, uh, prioritizing the rewards that life has to offer with the thing that you're addicted to being very much at the top of the heap. Well, I'm wondering if we can't view the drug itself as a stimulus and the drug taking as a response to the drug itself. Yeah, you can. Um, I, I don't know how much that buys us. Yes, it's a stimulus. Yes, we take it. The response is a whole bunch of things. Initially, relief or pleasure or both, and then eventually the negative consequences that we all know about. Um, but the brain and the way we learn is so much more complex than that. Real-world learning involves a whole network of cues, a whole network of responses, um, strategies for getting the thing that you want, for getting the reward, strategies for um, for reducing the, the the negative consequences of that, which often amounts to lying and cheating and you know all the rest of it. Um, so it's a whole complex network of learning activities that in and around the drug itself, and I think it's important to recognize those as well. Okay, I want to ask you about. Yes, it does. Um, I want to ask you about how you quit, um, um, particularly because we know – well, this gets back to everything we were talking about, choice theory versus disease theory. And we know that um, that most addicts, um, most people with alcohol dependence or substance dependence actually do quit when they get older. It's called maturing out um, – and this is kind of opposed to the whole hijacked brain theory and progressive disease that it gets worse and it requires intervention and treatment in AA. But you quit on your own, didn't you? Yeah, I did. And that seems to be what the research tells us the majority of people do is to quit on their own. Yeah, I'm noticing that. I see a lot of statistics to that effect that people do eventually quit. I don't know what the rates are. I think they're somewhere between 50 and 60% for... Uh, you know what they also call spontaneous recovery, mm-hmm. but but yeah, it's it's a, it's a highly controversial topic as you know very well, and there are all these wars being fought around. Uh, you know how uh, is it sacrilege to talk about 
spontaneous recovery? Does that mean maybe you weren't ever really addicted? So if it doesn't fit the disease definition and the 12-step definition, then you are you are now one of the, uh, the um, should I say, the naysayers. And... Um, and yet, it very often happens. And, and for me, I went, I did have some of the conventional forms of treatment, never a 12-step program. This was way back in uh, the, uh, I guess, the, the, the 1981. Um, and I don't even know if Narconon was, was around then. But for me, I tried psychotherapy. I tried um, uh, a non-residential uh, treatment program. And they just didn't do it for me. And finally, things got bad enough that I was able to convince myself that I needed very badly to make a uh, a really major change. And I, I kind of talked myself into it. Well, one of my feelings is, and I know you talk about this in the book too, but when you are young, when you're an adolescent, uh, you're, people engage in lots of risk-taking behaviors. Their brain is set right. up to do that, and then when they get older and more mature, suddenly these risky behaviors don't make as much sense anymore, and they can make a choice to uh, change their behaviors. You know, one of mine was smoking cigarettes, which was cool when I was younger, but, you know, when I was getting in my 50s, it's like, uh, maybe this is going to kill me and it's not got a good payoff. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we do change. Um we change in our dispositions and where we are in life and our um, responsibilities, how we see ourselves, and the brain is changing too. So the, the reward systems that involve dopamine and testosterone and a number of other uh, neurochemicals uh, are pretty much peaking out early in adolescence. And then some of that stuff settles down, and it's accompanied by a shift in our emotional life where uh, just running after rewards isn't as reinforcing anymore, and you start to want to settle into things that have more long-term consequences. And a lot of this you can actually flip it and put it in terms of this phenomenon of uh, so-called delay discounting. That's the phenomenon that when that whether we're talking about rats or pigeons or humans, immediate rewards have a lot more power over our choice-making mechanisms than do long-term rewards. So the good thing that you're going to get, whether it's a marshmallow or a cookie or whatever it is, uh, a moment from now seems a lot better than the one you might get uh, half an hour or an hour or a day or a week from now. And with addiction, as, as you know, um, it's the, the immediate pull of the thought of getting that into yourself, into your system, that is so much more powerful than the potential reward of having uh, having a healthy marriage, holding on to your job, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That emphasis on the immediate is part of what the dopamine system does in 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 choice making and goal pursuit, and. Uh, that all changes to some degree. The immediate reward in relation to the long-term reward starts to shift as we get into our 20s and 30s, as the dopamine system starts to settle down. Yeah, so then the whole maturing out phenomenon kind of makes sense. I mean, the drugs are pulling the brain in one way to use more, but then the brain itself is maturing and it's pulling yeah. away from some of these risky behaviors. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, and dopamine, like all neural systems, it's very complex. 
I'm really talking about the impact of dopamine on an area called the ventral striatum or the basal ganglia, uh, which is an older part of the brain. It's not really, it's not part of the cortex. Um, but it's very important when we're going after things, when we're attracted to things, we, we put a goal up on the, on the screen and we, uh, we pursue it. And that system is really important to be going full bore in adolescence during which time, um, according to our evolutionary needs, we had to find a mate, we had to um, find a home, we had to make friends and, and build alliances and before we could become adult members of the community or in order to become adult members of the community. So it makes sense that that stuff has, has a, this, this kind of jet-propelled um, uh, character in adolescence. But after that, no, you don't need it as much, and, and things do start to change. So, now, what, yeah. are, what are some of the specific things you did that uh, helped you to quit? Well, I one of the things was hitting bottom, and I know you've heard that one before. Uh, and the trouble with talking about hitting bottom is that for, for me and for many other addicts, it keeps hitting bottom again and again, and you kind of wonder, well, I've hit bottom now. <laughs> There's not really any place left to go but up, and yet you keep hitting bottom. And so, so that in itself is not the whole deal, but it's part of it. It the, my attraction to to drugs, to opiates, um, became infused with repulsion, negativity, disgust, all these aversive feelings, which became so powerful that even the pull toward it, the feeling that I want it, was 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 kind of tattered and and uh, uh, stained and plagued by all these negative feelings, kind of almost an attraction and a repulsion in one. That helped. And so did realizing that I that I could talk to myself in a different way. Instead of saying to myself, I'm I'm not going to take any for at least six months or for at least a year or I'm not going to shoot it or I'm not going to do this or I'm not going to do that, it wasn't enough for me. I needed to say, I'm not going to do it again ever. I don't want to do it. I don't like it. It's not for me. It's killing me. And I don't want that. And And that was a different way of thinking about it and a different way of, of talking to myself, which made me feel like I was on, there was somebody on my side, i.e. I was on my side, as opposed to always fighting myself. And that, that was a pretty big factor as well. Well, I think self-talk is really important. Um, you know, earlier earlier on, we keep, we tell ourselves, "Well, I really like these drugs or these cigarettes or this booze," and you know, we we tell ourselves it's really great stuff. But uh, you know, yeah. and as long as that self-talk is going, it perpetuates the using of these substances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think self-talk is incredibly important as well. It's uh, people are not necessarily aware of how how ubiquitous it is, but it's always going on in the background of your mind. Even if it's not in actual words, we have uh, a sense of being criticized, a sense of, of harshness or a sense of punitiveness, um, as though someone's looking over your shoulder and, and all the rest of it and judging your activities and being harshly uh, um, uh, critical at times. I think everybody's got it going on and and you can change that it's possible to it's possible to adjust the kind of voice that you use in reflecting on yourself and in judging your own activities you can say to yourself this is bad 
and you are a complete jerk for doing it again, or you can say to yourself, this is bad, and uh, I understand why you're doing it. I really understand, and let's try, let's try to not do it. I noticed one thing you said in your book when you quit. You quit drugs, the illegal drugs, but you said that uh, you were drinking alcohol but at moderate levels. And tell That's us a little right. bit more about that. Are you still a social drinker? Yep, I still am. Yeah. Um, I like scotch and I like red wine. And uh, it's it's never been a problem. It's I mean, there are times that I've drunk too much, of course, but um, it's never become a habit where I've done that day after day or week after week. It, I know it's a serious problem for some people, both the alcohol itself and also the fact that people who are trying to quit drugs or other things, when they drink, their their judgment becomes clouded, their impulsivity increases, their self-control diminishes. And so drinking then puts them in danger of going back to drugs. For me, it wasn't like that. I actually, I guess alcohol was a reward for the first few months. I could say, well, I don't have drugs in my life, that's for sure, but, you know, after work today, I can have a glass of wine or gin and tonic or whatever it is, and... uh I think that helped me. I think it helped to kind of structure my day and give me something that was a bit of a boost and that I felt was safe. Well, I've seen some statistics, some numbers that say about half of people that kick a drug addiction, I think particularly an opiate addiction, will become social drinkers afterwards. Uh And about about half uh, have some problems with alcohol and it's better to avoid it. But I think, well, partly it's, it might be that people just try to jump into the alcohol and use it as a substitute for the opiates and just drink as much as possible, and that could be very problematic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but you can use it as a substitute in a more moderate way, which is really quite natural. Here's this thing, this process that's been a huge part of your life for years, and that is taking something into your body, a chemical, and changing the way you feel. Uh to completely stop something like that is tremendously traumatic. It's tremendously difficult. So, you know, the AA people are always smoking cigarettes and and, uh, drinking coffee. I mean, that's got to be a substitute, too. But but the point is, you're still putting stuff in your body. You're still changing the way you feel. It's still part of who you are, part of your life, part of your culture. But you're not putting the stuff into your body that is really messing you up in a big way. And that's the difference. Yeah, I did a similar thing once again when I quit smoking cigarettes. I said, well, for the first year, you can have one cigar a month. You don't have to inhale cigars. Uh-huh. And they, you, know, you don't have to jump back into the cigarette smoking, but you can have this as your reward for quitting cigarettes. Right. And my father and, did that, too. <laughs> and so that worked pretty well. Now I'm a, I'm an occasional recreational nicotine user instead of a nicotine uh-huh. addict that I used to be. Right. Yeah, good for you. I think that's great. Uh, you know, we tend to think in these rather rigid um, categories, you are either doing it or you're not doing it, and that doesn't always make sense. Mm-hmm. Well, it's total heresy uh, of, in the traditional treatment system to say, uh, well, you can kick heroin, but you can be a social drinker afterwards. You know, the, when you go through yeah. the traditional treatment in the U.S. today, it's, oh, you must quit all addictive substances, except you can smoke yourself to death. <laughs> I know. That's a bit odd, isn't it? Yeah, that's the most addictive one of all is the cigarettes. At least yes. that's the one that's reported the hardest to quit. Yeah, but yeah, I've heard that too. Jerry Garcia says that. 
among others. Go on. Yeah, yeah. There's, uh, there was a research article published on that not too too many years ago, where the uh, some research scientists categorized the addictions in. Well, difficulty of quitting was one of the variables, and cigarettes came out number one on difficulty of quitting, and this was summarized in a New York Times article. Yeah, I've heard that, too, from all over the place. And uh, I think it would be miserable to have to quit something which is still very available, very much a part of the symbolic imagery of movies and uh, and magazine, well, not these days, less and less, um, at least in North America and Europe. There's, uh, it, it's, it's slowly being weaned out of the imagery that young people are exposed to, but at least for, for older people, that was a big part of what being cool was about, as, as you also mentioned. Well, it's interesting. So, um, yeah, having, having, that, having to live in that world without that thing must be, must be difficult. Well, it's interesting because I started smoking cigars. Actually, I didn't start with cigarettes, and that was my preferred thing because the W.C. Fields, Groucho Marx, and all those comics, the, that image, I like that. I only switched to cigarettes when I was in college and didn't have time for, you know, a slow, enjoyable smoke and had to run between classes. And then I got hooked and couldn't, you know, switch back forever and ever to you know, many, many years, decades before I finally, you know, got off of cigarettes, became an occasional smoker. Um, now I'm talking too much about myself, and we've got to concentrate. Tell me some more about okay. your book and your history about uh, going to Berkeley and the drug culture there. Uh, it's the, the first few chapters of my book take place in a boarding school where I was sent as a teenager, and that's when uh, I was pretty miserable and had a lot of... Uh, I had to struggle with depression for the first time in my life and kind of set the scene for what was to come. And then I moved to Berkeley, went to school at the University of California in Berkeley, and that was in 68. And, of course, you know what was going on there. In 68, 70, to the, through the early 70s, um, it, for me it was, like, it was like coming out of hell and moving to heaven. It was like there was drugs everywhere, and, and there was all this talk about freedom and all this excitement and novelty in the air instead of this rather repressive um, militaristic environment. So I, I, I felt great there. But I couldn't break the, uh, I couldn't get rid of all of the depression and, and the um, feelings of inadequacy that I had developed. And so that's why I continued to be attracted to drugs in a way that wasn't just part of the cultural scene. It wasn't just playing hippie, but it was also, it was deeper than that. And so gradually life went on, and uh, I did a lot of traveling. I ended up back in Toronto, got married and so forth. I became a psychology student, but I could not kick the, uh, uh, the cravings, the longings for narcotics, and then I, I began to get them from other sources. I began to find that I could steal morphine from the, from the rat labs. There were big balls of it in there. And so I started to avail myself of drugs in different ways, and, uh, and things then went from... Out of the frying pan into the fire. Do you think you were self-medicating? Yeah, I do. I think that's that's a reasonable way to talk about about drug use for many people. Uh, and it it remained that in the present tense as well. I mean, what opiates do? I guess there are different kinds of medicine for different kinds of problems. Um, psychostimulants like meth and coke. Uh, may chase away the blues in some ways and 
you know, and perk you up and your life seems boring and dull and powerless. But what opiates do, what they're meant to do biologically is to soothe pain. And, um, to, and that includes stress, anxiety, fear, all those things that make animals freak out. We are animals, and when we are feeling stressed and anxious, um, we're not feeling good. We're feeling just rotten, and we're not, we're not functioning very well. And the brain naturally produces opioids, which relieve some of that. And then you learn to get a whole bunch more of that stuff, not from your own hypothalamus, but from, um, you know, from a drug factory in Mexico or wherever it is. And you say, wow, this is great. I can really do a lot more soothing when I have, when I have more of this stuff, and I can do it whenever I want. Yeah, I found I had the same experience with alcohol when I was uh, drinking really heavily. Uh, was definitely yeah. a self-medication, uh, you know, a- approach. I was trying to you know, deal with depression and uh, yeah. had to learn to deal with these issues in other ways. Did you learn other ways to deal with issues? Yeah, sure, I did. Yeah, and yeah, alcohol. I'm not saying everything revolves around opioids, but alcohol also releases opioids. It releases a com- it's a complex. Um, chain of chemical reactions, which include opiate release, uh, opioid release from the brain. So, so yeah, that can have some of the same effects. And in answer to your question, yeah, I went through uh, meditation and yoga and this and that and various ways to try to try to be with myself, accept myself, and not not continue fighting myself and disliking myself. And after I quit, I got into um, I got into fairly serious psychotherapy experience, which lasted for about a decade, uh, and I really found out a lot about myself. I found out, a, started sweeping out a lot of hidden corners, a lot of dark and dirty corners of, of my psyche, and uh, yeah, it's it, I became really kind of a different person. Yeah, I learned a lot of cognitive behavioral stuff, and I really changed my self-talk a lot. My self-talk was very yeah. negative, and right. no wonder I was making myself depressed. You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think a lot of that depression has to do with the the nasty, punitive voices, that kind of self-blame. It's really, really a, a terrible burden to carry around every day. So, uh, yeah, learning to change that CBT or Mine was more of a psychodynamic approach, but whatever it is, and there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff now in mindfulness meditation and uh, ACT and related forms of therapy that I think try to do the same thing, try to change the way you talk to yourself. Yeah, there's all kinds of different flavors of therapy out there, and you know I don't push any one particular school, but it's more. Uh-huh. I think people should find what the, what appeals to them and works well. And often it's more about finding a therapeutic alliance too. If you get somebody that you yeah. work really well with, it's more important than what particular school of psychotherapy they practice. This is what the research tells us that the. Um, the bond with the therapist is much more important than the actual type of therapy, the alliance, as they say. So, so yeah, you've got somebody sitting a few feet away from you who seems to accept you, who you trust, who you like, and they seem to like you. And uh, that's the first step in starting to feel that you're, that you're likable for some people. I mean, that's something, oh, I'm likable? Well, that's, that's news. Well, we're starting to come to the end of the show now, so what uh, final words would you like to leave us with? Um, I think that there's there's so much to say, and 
uh, I've really started to get into the addiction community through my blog. And you check out my website, memoirsofanaddictionbrain.com, if you're interested in some of what, what we're talking about. I think the science of addiction and the experience of addiction need to be brought closer together. It's not just about the disease model. It's not just the idea of the hijacked brain. There's a lot more to it. Understanding brain states that underlie addictive forces, compulsions, and behaviors is, is a part of understanding addiction. And I think 50 years from now, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a really big part of our, how, we, how we understand ourselves. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Mark Lewis, for being a guest on our show. Thank you for inviting me, Ken. And everyone, come back tomorrow night at our regularly scheduled time. Our guest will be our guest will be Jay Levy, who will be talking about homeless narratives and pathways to housing. And we will see you all then. So, thank you, everyone, and goodbye. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.